You have received a magnificent invitation written in golden ink. You are invited to relax through this chapter-by-chapter -chapter calm summary of The Lord of the Rings. You can listen, ignore, or a little of both. For the next few minutes, the only thing you have to worry about is Chapter 6 of The Fellowship of the Ring. It's a chilly, quiet morning. You're standing outside your front gate with your walking stick, pack of supplies, ponies, and your friends. The world feels full of promise and you're ready for your first real dive into the unknown. In the last chapter, Frodo, Sam, and Pippin elude the Black Riders long enough to have a lovely evening with their friends at Frodo's new home in Crick Hollow. After dinner, it's revealed that the entire circle of friends has figured out the secret of the ring. And not just that, Merry and Pippin insist on coming along for Frodo and Sam's journey. The less adventurous and unfortunately nicknamed Fatty will stay behind to wait for Gandalf and impersonate Frodo to keep up his cover story. The chapter ends with Frodo having a strange dream that seems to foreshadow something though it's not clear what. In this chapter, the hobbits leave friendly territory and enter the old forest. Though Bucklanders talk about it in the same way people talk about the neighborhood haunted house, it actually manages to live up to its threatening reputation. And today's chapter is all about thresholds. Our heroes will be leaving what is familiar and coming up against their first real test. Keep an eye out for the many times they suddenly cross into a new situation. They'll go back and forth between lost and on track, safe and unsafe, frightened and complacent. These thresholds supply a lot of tension in this chapter, and our heroes will be trying their best to navigate between what's familiar and magical, visible and invisible, knowable and unknowable. And behind it all is Old Man Willow, the monster we can't see, but we sense hiding just behind the next corner. So if you're ready, we'll wave goodbye to Fatty Bulger and head into Chapter 6 of Book 1, The Old Forest. Chapter 6 opens in the sleepy hours before dawn. It's late September, the 26th if you want to know. So instead of frost, a cold, wet fog covers everything like a blanket. Buckland is quiet, and the chilled air makes little faraway noises sound very near. Frodo closes the door to his cottage softly behind him, and all five hobbits mount their ponies. They ride on in silence towards a large hedge that marks the border of Buckland and the Old Forest. Merry, continuing his streak as the most capable hobbit of the bunch, leads the group to a brick tunnel under the hedge and unlocks a secret gate that allows his friends to ride through to the other side. They all say goodbye to Fatty Bulger and cross into the old forest. The 
The old forest is the first place we visit that is completely unfamiliar to the hobbits, unless you count Mary's handful of brief visits years ago. Everyone's feeling a little jumpy because of its fearsome reputation in the Shire. And for goodness sakes, they've just bypassed what is probably the biggest security perimeter they've ever seen to get inside. It's gotta make you feel uncomfortable. As they make their way through the dark tunnel cut through the soil beneath the hedge, Mary tells them that though the rumors of boogeymen and werewolves probably aren't true, there's definitely something strange at work out among the trees. There's this great bit of exposition as Mary fills in his sheltered Shire friends. I'm going to read it in full because I love how it slowly raises the stakes from potential creepiness to imminent danger. When they ask about the forest, Mary says, Everything in it is very much more alive, more aware of what's going on, so to speak, than things are in the Shire. And the trees do not like strangers. They watch you. They're usually content merely to watch you as long as the daylight lasts and don't do much. Occasionally the most unfriendly ones may drop a branch or stick a root out or grasp at you with a long trailer. But at night, things can be most alarming, or so I'm told. I've only once or twice been in here after dark, and then only near the hedge. I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language, and the branches swayed and groped without any wind. They do say that the trees do actually move and can surround strangers and hem them in. In fact, long ago they attacked the hedge. They came and planted themselves right by it and leaned over it. But the hobbits came and cut down hundreds of trees and made a great bonfire in the forest and burned all the ground at a long strip east of the hedge. After that, the trees gave up the attack, but they became very unfriendly. If they were riding in a car, about halfway through this is when you know Frodo would lean over and lock the door. At this point, we know a bit about hobbits, and anything that forces them to resort to a scorched earth policy has to be bad news. And apparently, Bucklanders do not mess around. Leaving the tunnel, Mary takes a lead through the forest. It looks like every other forest you've seen with perhaps less undergrowth and the occasional unfamiliar species of tree. But it's the quiet that is truly eerie. In the still air underneath the canopy of leaves, every sound seems muted besides the creak of the branches and the crunch of the pony's feet on dead leaves. This is the most silence we've had in the series so far and already it's beginning to feel uncomfortable. Trees become darker and denser as they go and increasingly begin to bar their way. Worse, the hobbits begin to have a growing feeling that they're being watched by unfriendly eyes. Just as they begin to suspect Mary has gotten them lost, they suddenly see an open space through the trees ahead. 
the bonfire glade, where generations ago the hobbits burned the attacking trees. The bonfire glade is a bare, scruffy place in the middle of the forest where trees still refuse to grow. Imagine a big circular clearing covered with only grass and tall weeds. It's warmer here, and though it isn't a particularly attractive place, the hobbits feel much better to have some idea of where they are. Plus, it's away from the oppressive feeling under the boughs behind. It's that feeling of relief when you're hopelessly lost and you suddenly catch sight of a familiar landmark, even if it's just an old building. After a quick rest, the hobbits find a clear path with fewer trees on the far side of the glade. Relieved, they make for this helpful new track. Apparently, they're unaware that it's a little too well-placed. It's becoming obvious, at least to us, that in their optimism, Mary, Sam, Pippin, and Frodo are following a path that's being chosen for them. As the afternoon wears on, this great new path becomes more treacherous. Trees draw closer and seem to make their ill will felt even more plainly than before. Frodo decides to sing a jaunty travel song to lift everyone's spirits. But as the forest grows even more uncomfortable, it's clear that that was not a good idea. For the second time, just when danger feels imminent, the forest suddenly relents, and a clear path appears towards an inviting treeless space. This time, it's a large green hill. Now, I'm from Ohio, so when I hear the word hill, I picture something pretty small. But thankfully, Middle-earth is not Ohio. This grassy hill is large enough that its top clears the roof of the forest. The hobbits lead their ponies round and round it until they arrive at the top. It's about 11 o'clock and the last of the morning mists make the place feel like an island in an endless sea of trees. Downhearted, the little group decides to eat lunch and get a look around. So, I want to give you an idea of the geography we're working with without making you look at a map. If you're able, hold your right hand in front of you with your palm facing your face. We'll say that your hand is the footprint of the old forest. The outer pinky edge on the left is the hedge, and the index finger edge on the right is the border between the forest and the Bear Downs to the east. Now, we don't know much about the Bear Downs other than that they have a reputation about as bad as the forest. Right now, the hobbits are having lunch on the hill that's probably at the middle or lower pinky. Their plan is to make a clandestine shortcut through the forest to meet up with the east road, which runs in a horizontal line above your fingertips. 
Hopefully, when the Black Riders figure out the ring is no longer in the Shire, the hobbits should be long gone. As they're looking about, Mary points out one more feature. They see a misty valley cutting diagonally across the forest, in the same direction as the thumb crease running across your palm. At the bottom of this valley is the Withy Windle, a large stream or small river that legend says is the source of everything strange about the old forest. Mary tells his friends that they should plan to avoid the Withy Windle at all costs. So while we let the hobbits eat some lunch, I'd like to go in depth about these trees we're hearing so much about. The first thing to note is that the name of the old forest is a wild understatement. It's actually one of the last fragments of an ancient mega forest that existed millennia before Frodo comes waltzing in. This primeval forest remained largely undisturbed for eons uncounted until the end of the first age of Middle-earth. So this age ended roughly 6,000 years before this chapter, with a cataclysm of biblical proportions. It breaks the earth and sinks half of the entire landmass into the sea. Just think of that, half of your town, half of your state, half of your country, just gone in a minute. That would change everything. And it does. Suddenly, these unpopulated wilderlands become hosts to refugees, both good and evil, who establish new kingdoms. Growing population, deforestation, and war slowly decimated the ancient forest until only tiny bits were left. These are the old forests we're in now, Woody End, which is where the hobbits meet Gildor and the other elves, the Chetwood and Bree, which we'll be traveling through soon, and Fangorn Forest, which we'll see much later on. And speaking of Fangorn Forest, if you've seen the movies, do you remember how threatening the Fangorn Forest feels at first? Think of this. Many people think that the old forest we're in now is a much more dangerous place than the Fangorn. Why? So both forests are full of semi-sentient trees but unlike the chaotic neutral horns that we meet in Fangorn, their old forest counterparts are actively out to harm the hobbits. In a letter written in 1972, Tolkien describes the trees in the old forest as being, quote, hostile to two-legged creatures because of the memory of many injuries. On top of this, there's no clear evidence of Ents in the old forest to keep these trees in check. Finally, the cherry on top is Old Man Willow, the big bad driving all the malevolence in the forest. But we'll come back to him in just a few moments. So here we are with four inexperienced hobbits fresh out of the Shire with no guidance who've dived headlong into an ancient, unknown, and hostile territory. Now, because the major threat is from trees, it's easy to forget that the danger they face during this chapter is much worse than anything they've experienced from the Black Riders so far. Our oblivious hobbits make up their mind to go on, following what appears to be a good path leading away from the hill. 
Hmm, one of those magically showed up again. As they walk, they realize their path is starting to bend southward toward the mysterious Withywindle Valley, the one place they really don't want to go. But they're finally getting wise to the forest. They decide they don't trust the path and it's time to leave it. Good on you hobbits. They head north and are rewarded with drier and more level land. They start to make good time, and they believe the road they're making for is only a few miles off. But the forest isn't done with them yet. Gradually, the course they've chosen becomes more tangled with growth. Soon, huge folds open up in the earth, cutting right across their track. With ponies and packs, it's nearly impossible to climb up and down the slopes that are now in their way. Hopelessly lost and unsure of what to do, they have no choice but to head in the direction being chosen for them. In the sinister words from the book, quote, they were being headed off. After what must have been a frightening hour or two, the friends unexpectedly exit the trees. Can you guess where they've ended up? This is one of my favorite passages. It's so atmospheric and otherworldly and creepy, and I think it's perfect. Here's what they see. After stumbling along for some way along the stream, they came quite suddenly out of the gloom. As if through a gate, they saw the sunlight before them. Coming to an opening, they found that they had made their way down through a cleft in a high, steep bank, almost a cliff. At its feet was a bank almost as steep. A golden afternoon of late sunshine lay warm and drowsy upon the hidden land between. In the midst of it, there wound lazily a dark river of brown water, bordered with ancient willows, arched over with willows, blocked with fallen willows, and flecked with thousands of faded willow leaves. The air was thick with them, fluttering yellow from the branches, for there was a warm and gentle breeze blowing softly in the valley, and the reeds were rustling and the willow boughs were creaking. This is the moment in the scary movie when I want to yell at the people in the haunted house, why don't you all just leave? But just like any person ever in a horror movie, the hobbits decide to go have a look around. Great. And wouldn't you know it, there's just one direction they can go, with a convenient path and everything. Pippin at least voices his suspicion but the hobbits find no better option than to follow it. The afternoon heat begins to become more stifling until at last they reach a shady spot under a huge gray willow. It's a magical place, but not in a good way. From the book, sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs and falling softly out of the air upon their heads and eyes. One by one, the hobbits succumb to sleep. Frodo realizes that something strange is happening, but it's no good. 
again from the book. Suddenly, Frodo felt sleep overwhelming him. His head swam. There now seemed hardly a sound in the air. The flies had stopped buzzing. Only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing, a soft fluttering as of a song half-whispered, seemed to stir the boughs above. He lifted his heavy eyes and saw leaning over him a huge willow tree, old and hoary. Enormous it looked, its sprawling branches going up like reaching arms with many long-fingered hands, its knotted and twisted trunk gaping in wide fissures that creaked faintly as the boughs moved. The leaves fluttering against the bright sky dazzled him, and he toppled over, lying where he fell upon the grass. Enter Old Man Willow. If the forest is itching to take revenge on anything going on two legs, it's because of him. Here's how he's described later on. None were more dangerous than the Great Willow. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green. He was cunning and a master of winds, and his song and thought ran through the woods on both sides of the river. His gray, thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth and spread like fine root threads in the ground, and invisible twig fingers in the air, till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest from the hedge to the downs. Now there's a lot of speculation out there around what Old Man Willow is. There's three general categories. Some think he's an Ent, the race of sentient tree people we meet in the Two Towers. Others think he's a horn, which we learn are either trees who become entish or ents who become treeish, maybe both. Still others say he could be something else entirely. Now, I don't believe he's an ent because he interacts with the world differently than ents seem to. For starters, he's rooted in the ground. He could be a horn, but he's a bit too sentient to be lumped under that definition. But then again, the story seems to hint that very few tree creatures fit squarely into these categories. So, that brings us to option C. None of the above. It's entirely possible that there are different races of sentient tree, much as we see with the different types of hobbits, elves, dwarves, etc., etc. Also, there's the possibility that he's some sort of unique nature spirit like Tom Bombadil or Goldberry. Certainly, something strange is going on in these parts. Goldberry has a connection to the Withywindle that seems to suggest it's more than just a water feature. Could this river have somehow amplified or changed Old Man Willow's power? There are just so many plausible theories out there. Whatever the case, no matter how frustrating it is, I think it's supposed to remain a mystery. Back in the Withywindle Valley, everyone's asleep but Sam. He manages to collect two ponies that had wandered off, and in the split second before he returns to his friends, Old Man Willow attacks. Sam arrives to find Frodo being held underwater by a tree root, and horrifyingly, he isn't struggling. Dragging him out of the water, 
Sam runs to the huge willow tree to find that Mary and Pippin have been drawn into its trunk. Only Mary's lower half is visible, and the crack grips his waist sharply like pincers. All of a sudden, they're out of options. In a questionable move, Sam starts a small fire on the side of the tree, which it responds to by threatening to squeeze Mary in half. But at least it's an idea. Sam is showing he can think and take action under stress. Frodo, meanwhile, proves he can do neither when he takes off up the path, yelling, Help! Help! It's a scary moment, and incredibly realistic. The hobbits are like us, no great strength, cunning plans, or magical powers. And accordingly, they fail their first test spectacularly. But thankfully for the hobbits, this is our moment of deus ex bombadil. Surprisingly, Frodo's cries are actually answered by a deep voice carelessly singing a nonsense poem. Its owner isn't far behind, and when he appears, he's the last thing Frodo and Sam expect to see. Here's the description from the book. There was another burst of song, and then suddenly, hopping and dancing along the path, there appeared above the reeds an old battered hat with a tall crown and a long blue feather stuck in the band. With another hop and a bound, there came into view a man, or so it seemed. At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people, though he made noise enough for one, stumping along with great yellow boots on his thick legs and charging through the grass and rushes like a cow going down to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright, and his face was as red as a ripe apple, but creased into a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands, he carried on a large leaf, as on a tray, a small pile of white water lilies. So enters one of the most argued about characters in the entire Middle-earth universe. I'm going to wait until the next chapter to talk a little bit more about what Frodo and Sam are probably wondering right now. Who on earth is Tom Bombadil? Sam and Frodo flag down this oddball newcomer who, despite his goofy demeanor, seems confident that he can do something about the hobbit-eating tree. True to his word, he's able to rescue Merry and Pippin with a lethal combination of singing, scolding, and thwacking with a branch. He invites them back to his home for dinner and conversation and bounds off with a booming laugh leaving the bewildered hobbits to follow. Now, I really had to restrain myself from reading you the entire walk through the suddenly enchanting dusk to Bombadil's house. It's only a page or two, but there are some of the most beautiful descriptions of the landscape. So, here's just a snippet. Just as they felt their feet slowing down to a standstill, they noticed that the ground was gently rising. The water began to murmur. In the darkness, they caught a glimmer of foam where the river flowed over a short fall. And suddenly the trees came to an end and the mists were left behind. They stepped out from the forest and found a wide sweep of grass swelling up before them. The river, now small and swift, 
was leaping merrily down to meet them, glinting here and there in the light of the stars, which were already shining in the sky. And so the hobbits reached Tom Bombadil's house. Nestled between the threatening old forest and the sinister bear downs, that sort of haunted Middle-earth version of Egypt's Valley of the Kings. Against all expectations, the hobbits find a homey house, radiating firelight and half-heard singing. From the book, And with that song, the hobbits stood upon the threshold, and a golden light was all about them. And there, we'll leave the hobbits on yet another threshold after that dark and dangerous chapter 6. Coming up in chapter 7, the hobbits get high on cancelled plans and have a great stay at what is basically their hippie aunt and uncle's B&B. By the way, we are halfway through the 12 chapters in book 1. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>